Mr. Yale, we come now to your scholarly works. During your career, you produced five monographs and numerous journal publications. There is time now to consider, and I've only been able to peruse just the monographs. The production of these occupied the whole span of your career from the early 50s to the 1990s, and they encapsulate your immense effort and great scholarship from immediate postgraduate days to retirement. Chronologically, the first three monographs were related to your research on Henich Finch, who became Lord Keeper of the Great Seal in the Court of Chancery. And as we've already mentioned, these three were produced when you were a lecturer in the period pre-1965. You set out to test the notion that Lord Nottingham could be considered the father of modern equity. So on the question of Nottingham shaping the future direction of travel of equity, you said in volume two that when Nottingham became Chancellor in 1673, I quote, equity had reached its critical point of development and it could have gone one of two ways, either with, quote, an increasing fixity in its rules and doctrines or by retaining its, quote, emphasis on the moral and therefore relatively unstable impulse in judicial decisions. What brought equity to this legal junction in its evolution? Yes. <clears throat> of course, the questions raised there have been further explored by others since those days and uh, I don't know what I can usefully say about them. So, <clears throat> Nottingham, I think, was the person who decided for the future that equity should not be a matter of an individual conscience of the Lord Chancellor, but should be a system of law on grounds of equity, that is to say, to some extent, following precedent and following prescribed patterns of development. <clears throat> I think the current person who is most forward in answering those further questions is Dr. Mike McNair at Oxford and he's compared recently the status in this context of Nottingham, Hardwick and Eldon and he thinks perhaps the greater amount of formalization of equity can be attributed to the two latter chancellors, Hardwick in the middle of the 18th century and Eldon at the end of it in the beginning of the 19th century. I think for myself that although those last two went on building and refining the work of the court, there is a lot to be said for Nottingham retaining his title as the father 
of modern equity in the sense that he first traced out the lines of development which the others followed and the shift from considerations of morality and ethics to ones of law is I think the work of someone who was certainly steeped in the common law tradition and I would say that of Finch. <clears throat> One text I haven't dealt with but which is very telling is the text of his copy of Cook upon Littleton which at the moment is still worked on in the British Library. It shows the nature of his annotations to that volume are such that it shows he was profoundly learned in the common law before he ever attained judicial rank. So I think that on the notion of the reification of equity as a branch of law rather than individual discretion is maintainable. I'm not very sure I can say anything about the reviews of the work except that they were all very welcome as uh, persons of competent knowledge taking an interest in what the <coughs> cases reveal. The reviewers were very complimentary, Mr. Yale. Excellent yes. work of literature by Professor Hanbury, well-documented scholarly by A. By mm. O. R. Marshall, scholarly, extremely erudite and comprehensive, mm. learned by Boyle, most notable volume, major contribution to our knowledge of the growth of equity by Professor Keaton. Mm. And of course, Hellsworth's remark here is the key to legal history must be found in biography. I referred to that this morning. It's the sort of uh, statement which would have been <laughs> strongly repudiated by Toby Milsom. It was against his principle, the uh, bio biographical explanation is something he uh, would not have thought of as sufficient or indeed correct. But he was not one of the reviewers. Right. Very, very interesting. Whether he would have reviewed it if he'd asked, I don't know. Probably he may not have been asked. Over the page we come to, over the beliefs about the mirror of justices, is certainly a, a book of a foolery uh, and was quite <laughs> properly debunked by Maitland and indeed by um, practically everyone who has read it ever since. It's a, it's a joke really uh, and a, quite a learned joke but all the propositions are in a sort of distorted mirror fashion and I'd I think those remarks are justified. So Professor Hanbury also says that you followed Holdsworth in, I quote,
crediting Nottingham with being, in Cottington's case, a pioneer of private international law. Could mm. you explain the significance of this comment? No, I, mean, I can't without <laughs> recalling the case itself. Ah. Uh, it, it was a case in which an issue of foreign law arose. That's right. And would therefore be called private international law nowadays. Mm. I think it was a, a, an instance of where litigation did uh, suddenly emerge with a, uh, a foreign uh, tag to some of the uh, tensions between the parties, and he had to make a choice. I doubt whether you can talk sensibly of private international law as a cohesive body of learning as existing in Nottingham's time. Right. I think that's a premature remark by Holdsworth right. uh, 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 in terms of what one would call private international law, except that it is one of the case, cases, I suspect, where one found as a well foreign element or either substantively or jurisdictionally creeping into the, what the Chancellor had to decide. Right. Marshall praised your thorough knowledge of the yearbooks. Did this mean that you had to master law French? Um, well, he, he could certainly uh, deal with law French. He could certainly read it. Could, could understand you, it. Could, could you deal with it, Mr. Yale? Could you deal with law French? Fr law French, yes. Up to a point. Yeah. I can read a yearbook. Right. But I don't claim to have edited a yearbook or anything of that sort. Right. It's a it, it, law French is by Nottingham's time passing out of fashion. It passes out of the professional equipment by the early part of the 18th century. Right. But it's still alive. People are still writing it and reading it in Nottingham's time, yes. Uh, Boyle also commented on Lord Nottingham's what he called surprising modernity of some of his decisions. Was this something Well, it depends what you mean by modernity. Uh, he was, a, he was a systematizer, and certainly when you're considering the law of trusts in his time, the first thing you'll do is to notice how he, as it were, classifies various forms of trust. He's, he's inclined not just to lump the idea in, in, together, but to analyze it in its parts and how it takes different forms and one leads uh, <clears throat> into a, an analysis of the different types of trust which can be made. He was a great uh, 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 mind for, I think, analysing what he's uh, met with by way of a general notion which can be then applied in different discrete fashions. I don't know whether modernity is a good expression, actually, here. Yeah. Right. Except you, you may perhaps have to ask Boyle what he means by being up to date, which is 
modernity is it or what? Or prescience or? Well, Keaton, uh, of course, is a, is a is a very well known name of the he, period. He's professor. And the Keaton, answer to that question is. Uh, he said that you threw a great deal of light. Yes, on it did. The it did uh, actually get a good deal of bad stick in the Commonwealth period. The, um, it's it's true of uh, America too, where. They place great, great emphasis on jury trial, a tribunal which doesn't use a jury. It's always suspect. And uh, the, uh, the reference there, I think, is to the efforts of law reform in the Commonwealth, which included, at one point, propositions for the abolition of the Court of Chancery. You rounded off your work, Mr. Hale, on Lord Nottingham by publishing in 1965 Lord Nottingham's Manual yeah. of Chancery Practice and Prolegomena of Chancery and Equity. This was by CUP, and this would have been undertaken in the early 60s, mm. by which time you were already deep into your joint project with Michael Pritchard on Hale and Fleetwood. How did you fit all of this in? Well, I, I, I wanted to <coughs> round off Nottingham, as it were, by <coughs> looking at what he had to start with. And the Manual of Chancery Practice is important, it seems to me, because it shows the tools he had to use when he was taking a, a his, his steps in developing the, the subjective subject of equity itself. And let me see. Well, the prolegomena is a collection of earlier notes and remarks about equity, a collection of his predecessor's decisions in some cases. He was sort of educating himself as he went along. He started off with these tracts before he was, uh, through his judgeship period of chancery, he was uh, preparing these things as introductory work to the work as a, a chancery judge, as chancellor. So, in a sense, they, if you want a historical sequence, not of publication, but of the, uh, his history. These come first. Right. To, you, you should read these first, it seems to me, before you turn to his work, actual work in the um, uh, court it's, uh, as a judge. Right. Was equity a topic that you lectured on was, at the time? Did you ever lecture on equity, Mr. Yale? No. 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 So, so you None can't... of this uh, is. It's uh, only in terms of legal history that right. I, right. I, I dealt with Nottingham. But uh, right. of course, I, I I started by reading books on equity, certainly, but modern equity, particularly a book which uh, was written by Hanbury. 
in Oxford, which many people regard as idiosyncratic, but I found very valuable. And Hanbury was, uh, well, he was a Venerian professor in Oxford, and he made uh, quite a reputation for himself for his exposition of equity, which not everyone agreed with. But I found him very valuable and uh, derived a good deal of help from his uh, work, Harold Hanbury. Right. Um, I looked at a review by J.P. Dawson, who was professor at Harvard, and he was extremely oh, Dawson, yes. very praising of your conclusions, and he said that your volume met the highest standard. Too of much of the conflict between chancery and the common lawyers. Yes. Do, do you think that his criticism was fair? I don't know that I did make a, too much emphasis about that. Uh, I, I, or too little. To, to, he thinks I emphasise too much the conflict. But I think the conflict was quite real, considering that there were quite formal propositions in Parliament to abolish the court outright. And once you get there, you're in the, in the, seems to be the danger area of something horrible happening. There were people who did, I think it was quite on the cards when when they were in in the in the full swing of reform of change, to after all they'd abolished Star Chamber, they abolished wards and liveries, they've abolished this, they've abolished that. Why in the, the throes of radical reform, one can't abolish chancery? It's a, also a question which they they did debate, actually did debate. I think it's on the cards, yes. Right. We will now move to the two volumes that both involved Matthew Hale. So Matthew Hale's The Prerogatives of the King was published in 1976, The Soul and Society, volume 92. Yes. This appeared 11 years after your Nottingham volumes. volumes. And by then, yes. you'd been a reader for seven years and with Michael Pritchard working on the Admiralty Tome for 16 years. Mm. Did prerogatives arise as a spin-off from your exposure to the works of Matthew Hale while you were investigating and doing your research in the British Museum and Lincoln's Inn libraries during the course of the Admiralty Court project? Yes. Well, the prerogatives of the King is a fairly substantial chunk of writing. It's uh, yeah, 76, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. The help, well, the, the help from uh, Dr. Baker and Professor Milsom. I, I think Milsom helped in making room for the volume and deciding when to publish it. But uh, I remember having some conversations with him about that. I really forget, uh, John Baker would have perhaps helped in certain ways, but I can't remember. 
how exactly he would uh, have uh, affected the. I think he, most of his knowledge of um, of, of of the um, sources, right. but um, he didn't. Uh, I think help me in the editorial work. I had to take some decisions there for myself about its composite nature. Because the trouble was that Old Hale wrote more than one version, and one had then to put the versions together to make a complete text of the thing. It was building up out of, not fragments, but out of one stage and two stage and the third stage of the writing. Right. All, as it were, had to be reconciled. That was the complication. Right. So I looked at a review of the prerogatives by the noted historian, legal historian Charles Gray, Charles yes. Gray, and he was very complimentary. He said it was a notable addition to sources of Hale's jurisprudence and beautifully edited. This must have been very satisfying to you at the time. Yes. Mr. Yale? Well, I'm very glad to have had his approval, I must say. He himself was a very uh, competent editor because he um, published on the law of copy holes at one time in a very uh, 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 expert manner and was a, a very gifted legal historian. I haven't met him for many a long year. He re-emphasizes some interesting points that you brought out in your 58-page introduction. He said on page 371 that Hale saw the powers of the Crown as virtually coterminous with constitutional law, so that Hale identified the government with the King in contrast to today when one thinks of the government merely including the Crown. So. Mr. Yale, seeing the steadily diminishing role and prerogative powers of the king in modern government, is there truly any meaningful role for the king in our constitutional arrangements? Yes, the head of state obviously has a role to play outside statutory law, and that's what we mean by the common law powers called prerogative. They are common law powers which the executor, executive, head has to, to make the Constitution uh, serve its purpose. And uh, they're very much larger and more extensive in the old days because so much went power was committed to the Crown. But in modern times, those have been uh, limited in the sense of uh, shifting of powers to the the legislative part of this, of, of the government, that uh, the diminishing role uh, referred to here is a very obvious feature of modern law. We had one the other day, didn't we, with Brenda Hale and their lordships uh, declaring uh, Her Majesty out of order on, a, on publishing a uh, a a prorog prorogation order. She, she is certainly part of the prerogative to 
uh, suspend or uh, end Parliament and call, call for a new election. But uh, people are surprised now that uh, the thing is remitted to a judgment at all. It's um, a, a question of deciding how to limit the prerogative and still leave the, the executive with some powers and in cases of emergency, like war and peace and so forth. Mr. Yale, that brings us now to your 1993 Pritchard and Yale, Hale and Fleetwood on Admiralty Jurisdiction. Yes. And this is the major work you did jointly over 33 years. And it was a consequence of the 600th anniversary of the Admiralty Courts and suggested by the then Registrar of the Admiralty, Yes, Magathe. Yes. Can you tell us your memory of the original arrangements that were made? Well, they were having a, a great uh, a sort of celebration of 600 years uh, 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 since, uh, the, which they thought of as an anniversary of Admiralty, uh, but really of, I think, the laws of Oleron. Which was the um, um, the code of law for the Bay of Biscay and the that part of the Atlantic Ocean. You know, all these ports, Barcelona had its own code. Uh, Oleron, which is off Bordeaux, had all the wine trade, all the freight, big freight work of the Middle Ages. That was uh, the the. the Western seaboard of the um, eastern seaboard of the uh, of the Atlantic Ocean, and then there were other codes uh, in the Baltic and elsewhere. So that the history of the matter really starts when all these tend to coalesce, and the Admiralty enforces these sea, sea, seafaring rights and wrongs by its own peculiar civil law uh, means. Frank Wiswell, I see here, wrote a very good book on the American Admiralty, which is rather different from English Admiralty because they had to deal with Inland waters like the Great Lakes, not just salt water. But I knew Frank very well because he spent a year in Cambridge and wrote a thesis, which was subsequently published, and a very good um, book he made of it too. But um, I, I, I said this morning that the whole business of the work on the Admiralty was considerably changed in direction in the course of this long period of years. And we only got a, a definition of what the monograph should be when we were pushed for time at the end of, the, um, of our working uh, lives. 
So we um, d did have a considerable contraction of the uh, original project yes. in order to get something out, yeah. which we did, which we did. So did you select Hale and Fleetwood because they presented snapshots of the Admiralty approximately a hundred years apart? Yes, I suppose so. Uh, Hale and Fleetwood were um, um, uh, th that distance apart, that's very true. Fleetwood was a, a dissertation on the uh, commission of a vice-admiralty uh, of the Thames and it was, he, he took the clauses of the commission clause by clause in order to explain what the uh, components of the uh, jurisdiction of a vice-admiral were. Hale was a, a much more uh, was a, a, I think a better scheme. He took a historical scheme uh, starting from the, what he understood to be the beginning and then working up to his own day and uh, uh, taking it uh, chronologically, right. which was a different scheme. But together, he, I, I think Barton had a very good point of points in his review, Josiah mentioned here. Mr. Yale, can I just ask you, before we come to the review, mm. can I just ask you about um, the fact that uh, Mr. Pritchard mentioned that the Admiralty Criminal Court was quite unique because it had been set up as a common law assized court but staffed by civilians and it must be about the only time they ever sat side by side, that's, that's what he told me. So unravelling the two intertwined jurisdictional strands, the civil and the common law, sounds similar to the analysis that you had done, or at least partly simultaneously, with Lord Nottingham and equity. So did the Nottingham project stand you in good stead for the Admiralty project? It was a, a, a rather special arrangement. It was set up by statute by Thomas Cromwell's endeavours in the reign of Henry VIII, uh, 1535, uh, as a court which could convict pirates. The problem was that when the pirates went on the rampage and captured a ship, they immediately threw into the sea and killed all of the mariners who might otherwise be survivors and become witnesses to the act of piracy. It was a really uh, uh, the ordinary course of things to accompany with uh, uh, with piracy the murder of the crew. And the idea was that if you could change uh, the Admiralty Civilian Court into a statutory court for piracy, and for other crimes as well, then you could get juries who would uh, convict more readily in the absence of witnesses. 
it was it was that sort of feeling that to to ca- ca- capture and sit and hang pirates, it was a desirable move to get a more effective mode of trial against them because they usually, under the civil law, you needed a couple of witnesses before you could convict anyone of any serious offence. A couple of witnesses. But if the witnesses had all been duly murdered, you see, the, the, the pirates went liable to be um, discharged in a civilian court for lack of evidence. That was really what was alleged by Cromwell and others, and I dare say it's quite basically the truth of the matter. Now, apparently, because admiralty law is a federal matter, it's yes. remained an important jurisdiction in the United States. Yes, it does. Um, it's a separate jurisdiction and, 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 quite, and quite distinct. But in, in this country, it's been taken over by the common law. Today, if you get uh, a dispute over mariners' wages, for example, to take the obvious example, uh, the, the, the ship has been, has been discharged and the mariners have been discharged, but their pay has been withheld. What they do in admiralty law is to go into the court having arrested the ship as a pledge uh, for the payment of the uh, money not paid. And it works remarkably well, but it's the only, this in rem procedure is the only civilian procedure which is available um, and surviving in the hands of the common law. There's no longer a civilian court. The court of there is there is no court of admiralty now. It's it's a jurisdiction exercised by the high court of the old admiralty uh, matters and litigation. Right. So it has uh, still uh, a, this one vital point of a separate procedure when it chooses to exercise it. Because it does, it doesn't mean that it's it's applied sensibly. If you get a claim on a ship, for, not for unpaid wages or repairs for anything else, or for a, a failed mortgage, a ship's mortgage or something of this sort, you uh, certainly may arrest the vessel to start the procedures. But once you start with the procedures. The defenders are able to make payments into court pro tem, provisionally, pending the outcome, and so the ship can be released, and the sum of money uh, given in substitution as a to her hold, so that the system works very well. Yes. But it's 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 practically the only thing left of what you might call separate admiralty jurisdiction. There are others, too, there's the whole field of salvage, for example. In the civil law, there's a negotiorum gestio, you probably know. Well, there isn't a negotiorum gestio proposition in any consequence in English common law. 
you, if you interfere in other people's property benevolently, you may be found paying for the privilege. <laughs> but uh, if you if you run to the rescue at sea, it's okay because that's a civil matter, marine salvage. But it's another matter if you think of land salvage. There are problems there. Now, oh well, you, let's leave that alone. You, you touched on Frank Whistle earlier, and uh, he uh, was, of course, a PhD student. Do you have any specific recollections of him when he was a student? He was, he was at Cornell University. He's a New Englander. Yes. Lives still in Maine, and I last heard of him in. He's he's older as old as I am now. And he's had a very distinguished career. He's been very much in demand on international commissions for all sorts of marine matters. He he's a maritime law specialist, and. He is uh, a big name in the in that area. One of the mentions he made was the excitement in his review of your of your book. He mentioned the excitement that you and Michael Pritchard felt when you unearthed the Admiralty Bill indicting Henry Hudson's crew for mutiny in 1611. Do you remember the circumstances of this discovery? Well, there were a lot of excitements in the Admiralty records. That was the marooning of Cap on uh, uh, Hudson in in the bay. That's right. In the bay, yes. Yes. And they 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 managed, I think, pick up some of the malefactors right. in that marooning. Gosh. Mm. Yeah. There so, was an after story about that. We all. Uh, the marooning of John um, Cavett was um, well known at the time, but these were the proceedings afterwards for the people who had perpetrated this disgraceful act. Uh, right. Well, uh, Frank Whistle, in his review, said that you, an outstanding contribution that you made, was that you came as close as we are ever likely to get to the truth of the original nature of the actions in Rem and in Personum. Oh, well, yes, it's controversial, but it's rather... I think Rem goes back a long way of impounding a vessel when, when to get litigation going. They had a procedure in the City of London for impounding goods to start an action going uh, when, uh, I forget the name of it, something, something to do with the market. You could impound goods in the City of London, I think, where you had a claim against the person who possessed them and to get, to get the action going. It's possible that a local custom may have been taken up by the civilians down the rivers, as it were, to um, the, uh, ships disputes. Right. 
but but the idea of arrest is I think a fairly obvious one. You've got an asset of the other side in your power, you impound it in order to bring an action. It seems to me reasonable enough and you get you get instances of course of something very similar in the common law where there's a, a lien on a property for example the, the you have your car repaired in the garage there's an artificer's lien isn't there to keep the car until the bill is paid and that can be enforced in the courts. You you you, you the, the unpaid workman simply impounds the object under repair until he is assured he's going to get paid. That's the nature of the in rem. It's a it's only a, a device for bringing a recalcitrant defendant into court. Right. Um. Frank Whistle also said that your book was a monument to the perseverance and a fitting capstone to their distinguished careers. Yeah. Did you feel this as well as you retired, more or less, as the monograph appeared? I don't know. I still did see that review. Which is, it's somewhere in, in a review, is it? Yes. He said it was the, the book is a monument to your perseverance and a fitting capstone to your distinguished career. Well, that's very kind of him. I was glad to learn of that. I didn't realise he had um, been able to say that. I, I brought you a copy of the review, which I will leave with you. Oh, that's a good review. I will, yes. I, yes. I'd I like think, to see I th that. I think you'll but enjoy it. Perhaps it's a, a review which uh, I missed. Maybe. Um, now, in his review, John Barton at Merton College pointed out that you dealt with the jurisdiction of the Admiralty Court rather than the law. Rather than civil law, yes. Yes. Was this because of the change of trajectory when you decided to present Hale and Fleetwood's manuscript? Well, well, no, I don't think it was, actually. I think that it was a decision that we should keep the... Uh, exposition within bounds on which we had sufficient materials and could speak with some confidence but we weren't sufficiently uh, I think prepared to make confident account of the jurisdiction at its earliest earliest stages or indeed at the very latter end which, of course, was in the last century, quite recently. The Admiralty Court lasted until Victorian times. Right. But then it was abolished at the time of the Jupiter Acts. And jurisdiction was passed over to the uh, King's Bench and Chancery and Probate, Divorce and Admiralty, as they call it, as the Third Division. Now, one aspect that I found very interesting was your conclusion on page 207 that Admiralty law did not apply in foreign ports or in rivers and within command of gunshot from the shore. And you yes. said this reflects very clearly 
the influence of the development in international law of notions of the sovereignty and exclusive jurisdiction of a state over its own territory. That's a yeah, quote from yeah. you. Do you know if this line of thought has been followed up by later legal historians or international lawyers? Well, territorial waters, of course, has always been a, a matter of uh, expansion. Originally, it was just as far as the, the gunnery would reach. And that was later on uh, generalised into a, a three-mile limit, wasn't it? And, then, uh, and now in modern times it's been, even there, of course, it's not been a, kept, but a, a exceeded the influence of the development on international exclusively of its own territory. Well, it, there was, of course, in the period we were looking at, a uh, great debate about dominion of the sea, uh, sovereignty over the North Sea, and even wars in effect over who's, who, who, who was in charge of the Channel and the, and the North Sea, the Dutch and the French, who was quarrelling about that. So Mr. Yale, all the data that you amassed is now stored in the Squire Library. Is it? And yes. yes, and I went down and had a look at it in advance of this visit. And I wondered whether you had ever seen it since you retired. No, I haven't. I left it with Michael. Yes. And I trusted him to deposit it in a safe place. Yes, which he has done, uh, awaiting some I'm further research. To know that, yes. Yes, you can rest. Someone will maybe want to dig into it and do a, a much lengthier spread than we 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 achieved there's a lot there to use and uh, what i including some tentative drafts of things such as admiralty in scotland and admiralty in ireland as well as admiralty in england but it was it was a a, a regular part of Doctors' Commons uh, as a professional um, monopoly. And Doctors' Commons lasted until comparatively modern times. They were only dissolved at the time of the Judiciary Acts. The uh, Commons went out of business as a, a body of uh, learned lawyers. But they, they survived right up to the very end. Yes. Mm. You, we're coming now to briefly to your other works and journal papers. You wrote numerous uh, uh, other shorter articles. Uh, 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 many were case notes, too many to consider here with the time available to us, but including two on Admiralty matters in 1987 and 1988 in the Cambridge Law Journal. Uh, uh, could you summarise which of these many papers you think were the most significant? Well, my favourite article actually is, is quite recent, comparatively speaking. It was the article I wrote as I was leaving, uh, going to retire, 
uh, published in the CLJ under the title of A Year and a Day in Homicide. I don't know whether you've ever come across that piece. A Year and a Day in Homicide deals with the old common law rule that if a person inflicted a fatal injury on another, and that person survived a whole year and then died of the injury, you couldn't be a, couldn't be acute. There was no possibility of holding a trial because it was no longer cause and effect, full stop. That is, there was a rule of law which prevented you of indicting of someone who had uh, done a, a thoroughly fatal uh, act, but the fatality had not occurred within a year and a day. Uh, it, it, it's a rule which had attracted a certain amount of criticism from time to time. But I came across a particularly fugitious instance of that in a newspaper, Cambridge Daily News, I think it was, of a girl who'd, only be, who'd been uh, horribly assaulted and then spent the rest of her life over a year in coma before she died. Now, of course, the perpetrator in a case like that can be got at for attempting to kill, even if he didn't, in fact, in law, produce the death. But the whole thing has become very lopsided that people now with medical assistance can survive very serious injuries which eventually do in fact cause death. And the, 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 the rule was on the whole, I think, of time to, for time to reconsider it. So I wrote this article which was expressed my opinion. And, uh, among other things, it contained a proof of how the the rule came into existence in the Middle Ages, uh, which I was able to explain historically the actual cases in which these this very highly restrictive rule was manufactured. And the Law Commission took it up and with correspondence with me they drafted an Act of Parliament, and an Act of Parliament was passed to abolish the rule. So that's the one article I would wish to, as it were, offer as a justification for anything I'd written earlier, that it did solve a point of law and lead the way to making things more sensible. And if people do inflict fatalities on other people, they are not protected from the consequences. Right. Well, to sum up, given the current political and legal turmoil, Ray, our place in the EU, I cannot resist asking what are your views on the future development of the common law? A, if we stay in the EU, oh, yes. or B, if we leave the EU, 
Will it matter or would there be a significant difference in the English common law's evolution, do you think? Well, I think close association with the EU in the future would, would be probably productive of some changes, certainly, because having a, an ultimate court of appeal in Strasbourg and other places is, I think, sufficient for that to happen. And of course, the civil law procedures are already beginning to take some effect along those those lines. Many people think that civil law procedures are better attuned to producing just results. There's some truth in that, especially in the area of criminal law. I'm not so sure about other areas. So, finally, after a career stretching over more than 40 years, what do you judge as your most important academic scholarly achievement for which you would most like to be remembered? Well, possibly for remembrance sake, it might be the writing and research. Um, But I would rather... Uh, prefer to claim uh, tutorial teaching as the best memorial, the, the memory of that only lasts, lasts a lifetime of perhaps 50 years or less, because the, it is a personal interplay in effect, whereas the writing and research. I don't think is. Uh, The legal history is up to a point rather a self-indulgent exercise and although it's when it's well done I think it can claim to be time well spent. I don't think it's as time well spent as if one is actually helping people to get in the way of the science of it. Well, all I can do is thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to Mm. capture your memories and thoughts to place in the archive, along with other illustrious colleagues, and for your and Mrs Yale's hospitality here in North Wales. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. I hope all this is... (laughs) repeatable in uh, your box of tricks, if I may call it that, because uh, I'm not a a fluent speaker uh, uh, normally, and I don't know whether I've been sufficient help in answering your queries, but what they're worth, there they are. Mr Yale, this has been an extraordinarily fluent and fascinating account, and I, I really can only reiterate my gratitude. Well, well I'm glad that you are able to come. And Thank you so much. Please. I don't been... think it's very likely that I shall be back in Cambridge for, uh, in the next year or two. Right. And I 
At my age, of course, it's unlikely I shall go uh, travelling here and there. So, I appreciate your trouble in making the journey. Well, it has been... It's much easier to walk around to a room in the square library. <laughs> well, it's been such a pleasure. Yeah. Such a great, great pleasure. I can't begin to describe it to you. It's been a, a wonderful yes. day. A wonderful well, it's day. a good idea to capture people oh. while they're available. Yes. So, again, that was a very a long interview. Mm. Long and very interesting indeed. Uh, I'm just and going uh, to switch it off. Switch there it off, oh yes, yeah. of course.